This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. But during the series, um, we're working through, on Sunday mornings, we're working through 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9. And the context for those uh, chapters is that Paul is raising money for a mission project. There had been a famine uh, in the land, and it hit the church in Jerusalem especially hard. They were already a poorer congregation. They didn't have a lot of margin to absorb uh, difficulty, trouble, obstacles. And so when this famine came, it hit them very hard. They're struggling. And meanwhile, Paul is planting these churches in the Greco-Roman world amongst the cities of the Roman Empire. And he begins to share the story of the church's struggles in Jerusalem and then to raise money to help offset those needs. He begins to raise funds to send to the church in Jerusalem. And what happened was that the church at Corinth got really excited about this. They bought into the vision. They were thrilled. They wanted to be a part. They wanted to uh, help. Uh, They felt themselves connected to God's mission. They felt themselves connected to God's people. And so they uh, pledged to give. They started to give. But then evidently something happened and and they tapered off. And so the middle part of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 is Paul then encouraging them to finish what they started. They had a good start. And now he said, we want you to finish what you've started. And so in last week's text, chapter 8, verses 1 to 7, we saw uh, Paul lay out for the Corinthians an inspiring example, a great model of generosity in uh, the Macedonian churches, these churches of Macedonia, the way that they give, they gave uh, generously. And then in our text this week, Paul gives even a more compelling example He gives us the picture of the generosity of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 to 12. I'm really going to focus in on verse 9 this morning. We talked about verse 8 last week. I'll circle around to verses 10, 11, and 12 next week. So today, really, we're just going to camp out in verse 9. But I'll read to you the whole text that's printed for you uh, there in your making room booklets. It's page 36 if you're in the booklets there. And uh, if you're looking in the Bibles in your rows, it's page 900. And 68. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 8 to 12. The Apostle Paul writes, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And here's our main verse this morning. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we uh, ask that you would help us uh, as we sit under your word this morning. We pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would not just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers uh, of it. We pray that uh, we might think indeed what it means uh, that Jesus Christ has, has done for so much for us, that though he was rich, He became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Would you teach us what that means? Would you teach us what the implications of that are for our lives as we live it out? 
in community and in our neighborhoods and schools and in our city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Paul wants the Corinthians to follow through on the generous giving that they had initially pledged. And what is so interesting, I think, about these chapters is that Paul just does not talk about money all that much. I mean, he is raising money. That's the occasion for this. But he he doesn't talk about money that much. He doesn't shame them into giving. He doesn't even talk about God's laws about generosity. He could have done that, right? Combed through and just pointed to the law. But instead, what Paul does talk about a lot is the gospel. What he does talk about a lot is Jesus. He's convinced that if the Corinthian church, if they would see Jesus, really see him, and then that would lead to generous living. And so we're going to see three things just as we camp out on verse 9 this morning. And they aren't entirely separate points, but kind of they build one upon the other. We're going to see that the gospel is about grace. Secondly, we see that the gospel is about poverty. And then thirdly, the gospel is about wealth. Grace, poverty, and wealth. All right? So let's think about it. First, the gospel is about grace. I don't know if you've ever been locked out before, right? Lost your keys, don't have your keys, can't get in where you're supposed to be, can't get in where you're going. Uh, I think one time, particularly for me, uh, several years ago, there was a big Christmas party. So I was living in New Jersey where I went to school. And uh, so I went to my car and and drove uh, to the local store and uh, I did what any good Christmas party goer does, which was buy eggnog to bring, right? Like that's the right thing to bring to a Christmas party. So I get, I get to the store, I go in, I buy it, I'm coming back out, and I'm pulling my keys out of my pocket, and they fall to the ground and right into a sewer drain. And yeah, everybody's, yes, I mean, that's the right response. That was my response. <laughs> so I'm running late, it's snowing. By the way, it's like 10 degrees. Uh, I'm in my nice clothes, and I have to lay face down on the street to try to reach down. And it's one of those ones where it's like, you know, like the openings to the sides. You have to like try to like do this to try to get down there and get uh, the keys. And I'm doing this. And finally, after 15 minutes of laying in the ground, laying in the snow, trying to bend my arm into the position to get these keys, 15 minutes, a uh, store clerk comes out and says, you know, you can just pick the grate up, right? (laughs) So I got the keys, got to the party. I'm wet. I'm dirty. I walk in with my uh, eggnog, and my friend James says, look what the cat drug in, you know, and I said, I hate you, you know, and things got better uh, after that, but uh, it's terrible being locked out, right? Without keys, you're barred from where you're supposed to be, left out in the cold, wasting your time, and I bet some of us, uh, some of you feel that way uh, metaphorically when it comes to God. You kind of feel locked out. Maybe you come to church, maybe you've tried to read the Bible, and it just doesn't seem to click. It doesn't seem to make sense to you. It doesn't seem to be working. You feel like you're on the outside looking in. And and I bring this up to say, if you do feel this way about Christianity, if you feel this way about the Bible, then I think this verse, verse 9 of chapter 8, can really help. Because in many ways, it serves as the key to unlock not only an understanding of what the Bible is about, but it unlocks a way into a deeper relationship with God. And look at how Paul starts. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer, theologian, wrote this. He said, Grace 
is the key that unlocks the New Testament. And it is the only key that does so. It is the key word to the whole Bible. Grace. Christianity, at its root, is about grace. All throughout the Bible, you might read about, especially Paul's letters, he talks about the God of grace. He talks about the gospel of grace. Instead of starting his letters by, you know, hi, how are you? He says, grace to you. Instead of finishing the letters with, you know, sincerely or fare thee well or whatever, he says, grace be with you. Start to finish. Christianity is about grace. The Bible is about grace. To miss out on this, to miss this, is to be out in the cold, wasting your time, digging around in the drain. When we lose sight of grace, we, we get stuck. I mean, some of us are stuck. Even this morning, we're stuck in bewilderment. This is news to us, maybe, right? Christianity is all about grace. Maybe that's something we'd never heard before. Based on our experience with the church or with other Christians, maybe we, we thought that it was about trying to be a good person. Or, or maybe the darker side of that, we thought about it was trying to be right and then therefore looking down on those who are wrong. Some of us are stuck in formalism. That is, Christianity for us is boring and inherited and mechanical and external. That's how I grew up. You know, Victor Hugo wrote Les Mis. He, he said, life's greatest happiness is to be convinced you are loved. Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced you are loved. That would have never occurred to me at least in my experience with God, in my experience with Christianity early on in my life, that I could have that kind of relationship with God because religion was so formal and stuffy and a shell of anything that felt attractive and substantial. Some of us are stuck in formalism. Some of us are stuck in moralism. That is thinking, I'll work hard and I'll, I'll relate to God through my achievements, through my performance. And there's all kinds of problems with that. One being that when we're doing well, then it tends to puff us up. We, we, we're prideful and prone to look down on others. And then when we're doing poorly, we, it leads to despair, crisis existentially. But what gets you unstuck, what gets you in the door with God is grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the unmerited, unearned favor of God. It's God's love come to us, not because of anything that we've done, but because of his favor, his choice, his compassion. And Paul says, look, before we even start talking about generosity and giving, why you ought to be generous, before we even start talking about any of that, will you just please remember that God has been gracious to you? That's how Paul begins with the Corinthians. Christianity is about grace. The gospel is about grace. Jesus is about grace. Giving is about grace. Then he goes on. Secondly, the gospel is about poverty. And here we're talking about the voluntary poverty of Jesus Christ. Look at how the verse goes. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Let's think about the first part there. Though he was rich. Let's think about that for a second. In what sense was Christ rich? Now, if you think all the way back, go all the way, rewind to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, in other words, God made everything. It all comes from him. It all belongs to him. And then if you go from Genesis 1 to the beginning of the New Testament, in John chapter 1, the apostle John picks up on that theme. He's sort of riffing on Genesis, or Genesis chapter 1. And he says that Jesus was there for all of that. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And later on, John goes on to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That makes clear that he's talking about Jesus. And so Jesus' personal existence did not begin in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the agent of creation. He made it all, which means it all belongs to him. That makes us tenants, and Christ is the owner. It's hard to get more rich than that. But don't let this just fly on by. Try to let your mind ponder this for a minute. Ponder the, the things that belong to Jesus. Think about the oceans. Think about how big and how vast and how deep are the oceans in our world. They belong to Jesus. In 1521, the explorer Magellan wanted to see how deep the ocean was at a particular point. So he took his six longest lines, he tied them together, he tied a cannonball to the end, he dropped it overboard, and he ran out of line. It was 400 fathoms, 2,400 feet, and Magellan's conclusion was that the ocean was immeasurably deep. And indeed it was, right? Because they didn't have the instruments then to measure it. It was immeasurable to them. And based on Magellan's journals, the location that people think he was in, he would have needed 50 lines to hit the ocean floor. All the depths of the oceans, everything in it, belonged to Jesus. He's rich. But that's small potatoes when you think about the sheer size of the universe. And I'm told that if you look at the night sky... The nearest of the stars that you're likely to see, Alpha Centauri, Proxima Centauri, are 25 million miles away. And all the stars that you see in the night sky are just a tiny patch of our galaxy, which has in it 100 billion stars. And beyond our galaxy are literally millions of galaxies. In the fall of 1989, newspapers reported the discovery by Two Harvard astronomers of what they were calling a great wall of galaxies, stretching hundreds of millions of light years across the known universe. The wall, or the great wall, is some 500 million light years long, 200 million light years wide, 15 million light years thick. And in case your high school astronomy has grown fuzzy, a light year is a little less than six trillion miles. The great wall of galaxies consists of more than 15,000 galaxies, each of which have a million stars or more. And all of that belongs to Jesus. He is rich. Well, how about something a little more tangible, right? Because that might be tough to wrap your mind around. Let's think about the Grand Canyon. Bill Bryson writes about visiting the Grand Canyon in his book, The Lost Continent. And here's what he writes. He says, nothing prepares you to see the Grand Canyon. No matter how many times you read about it or see it pictured, it still takes your breath away. Your mind, unable to deal with anything on this scale, just shuts down. And for many long moments, you are a human vacuum without speech or breath, but just an inexpressible awe that anything on this earth could be so vast, so beautiful, so silent. Even children are stilled by it. He goes on. I was a particularly talkative and obnoxious child, but it stopped me cold. I can remember rounding a corner and standing there agog while a mouthful of half-formed jabber just rolled backwards down my throat, forever unuttered. 
That was when he was a kid, but he returned to the Grand Canyon 40 years later. At first, it was a terrible anticlimax because there was a fog over the rim and he couldn't see anything of the Grand Canyon. But then he writes this, a miraculous thing happened. The fog lifted. It just silently drew back like a set of theater curtains being opened. And suddenly we saw that we were on the edge of a sheer Gideon drop of at least a thousand feet. Jesus, we said, and jumped backwards. And all along the Grand Canyon, you could hear people saying, Jesus, like a message passed down along the line. And then for many moments, all was silence. Out there in front of us was the most awesome, most silencing sight that exists on earth. But there's an irony there, isn't there? Because they said the name Jesus, like a filler or maybe a curse. But they actually spoke better than they knew. Because that is the right name to give to the Grand Canyon. Because Jesus made it. Belongs to him. It's his name that we should exclaim. Not in vanity, but because he's the owner of it. Used to be the show uh, called MTV Cribs. This is highly contextualized to Gen X, uh, folks, if you've... Seen it, MTV Cribs is where they would uh, let you see the insides of celebrities' uh, houses, you know, rock stars and rappers and so on. And uh, the idea is you could, you know, gawk at these uh, awesome, sometimes quirky uh, things that they had in their homes, right? And you sort of envy as you watched. But compared to Jesus' riches, right? Those things are nothing, nothing. He was rich beyond imagination. But Paul says... For your sake, he became poor. The Greek literally says he impoverished himself. He laid it aside. He came to earth. He took on flesh. He walked among us. He entered Mary's womb. Sometimes when I think about this, I find myself wondering what the angel Gabriel was thinking. He's the one who was, the angel was sent to make announcements about what was happening, what was going to happen. I have to think, Gabriel was saying something like, surely, Lord, we can, do, we can do better than this. I mean, this is your, your big entrance into the world, something better than a farm town like Bethlehem. Lord, you can do better than Mary. I mean, she's nice enough, I'm sure, but she's poor and not well-educated. She's not trained as a leader. She hasn't read a book, probably, and, and definitely hasn't heard a podcast. Uh, the accommodations... It could be better, right? A manger? That's where you're planning to be born? Animals poop in there, you know? I mean, is this really where you want to enter the world? But it gets even worse, doesn't it? Because after Jesus is born, Jesus is despised by King Herod, who perceives his birth as a threat. And so in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, it records the slaughter of the innocents, baby boys being killed, and Jesus and his parents become refugees. They're on the run. Jesus, as he grows up, as an adult, he has an itinerant preaching ministry. He has some supporters, but it's not a cushy lifestyle at all. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He made the Grand Canyon. He has nowhere to lay his head. He was captured and mocked and beaten. And do you remember? As he's hanging on the cross, they rolled dice See who would get his clothes. When I think of that, I always think of this little boy I went to school with in the third grade. We were on the 
school bus, and he told us one time that he only had four toys. And uh, one day on the bus, he, uh, his parents, evidently they had had a tough, uh, tough time, a tough go of it. He had four toys, and, and on the bus one day, one of his toys broke, and he just began to weep. And I think any kid gets sad when a toy breaks, but even in my little third grade mind, I knew that this was different, right? If, when it's one of four, and you lose it, it hurts all the more. Jesus only owned a few possessions, and there at the very end, as he's mocked, they're also taking what little he has left. He suffered poverty. And then finally, he suffocated as he hung on the cross, a method of execution that Cicero called the most cruel of all punishments. His very breath was taken from him. Our culture loves rags to riches stories, but this is the inverse, right? This is riches to rags. And even that description doesn't really do it justice. Think of the sheer size of the drop-off, heaven to the cross. The gospel is about Christ's poverty. Though he was rich, he became poor. But why? Why did he do it? Paul says, for your sake. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And that means finally that Christianity is about wealth. It's about grace. It's about poverty. But finally, the gospel is about wealth. He did it for your sake. In Greek, it literally says, for your need. He did it for your need. Do you feel needy this morning? You should. I just go here with me and sort of little thought exercise. Imagine that this winter, Lord forbid that this would happen, but imagine that your electric is turned off, your electricity is turned off. And uh, somebody from the church, somebody from the Deacon's Fund has heard about this and they, they come to you and, and they say, hey, we, we, we heard what happened. We don't want you to, to miss, uh, we don't want the bill to go unpaid. We don't want your electricity turned off. We don't want you to experience the cold this winter. Now, if that happened, I imagine you would be, you'd be grateful, right? Somebody came to you and offered to pay a debt like that, right, to make sure that you had heat. But what if, just again, for the sake of our story, what if the reason that your heat got turned off was simply that you forgot, right? You just forgot to, maybe it's a mistake, you're bad at paying bills, you just, you know, get stuck on the corner of your desk, all these things were stacked up, you just forgot. Or, or maybe things really were tight and you didn't have the money, but, but then a paycheck came in and you, you do now and you, you've got some money in the bank and you can pay. If that was the situation, you'd be thankful for the offer, right, for somebody to step in and pay your electric bill for you. You'd be thankful for the kindness. You might even get a warm fuzzy, but you'd probably say something like, it's really nice, but, but I've got this, you know, I can handle it. Totally different ballgame, though, right? If you really are totally out of money, right? If there's no way that you possibly could pay the bill, the difference between you and the cold this winter is the kindness and the grace of others. Now, if that's the case, totally different reaction, right? It's not thank you for the thought. It's thank you so much. That's what I needed. I couldn't do it if you didn't step in. And here's the thing. We tend to think of ourselves spiritually like the first person. Yeah, I'm not perfect, okay? I make mistakes, of course, but I'm not destitute. I'm not impoverished. And when we think of it that way, the gospel seems like, 
oh, what a nice thought. Jesus would come to me. He would come near me. That's really sweet. But if you believe what the Bible says about who we are and what our predicament really is, the gospel is not sweet. It's the best news in all the world. Because Jesus looks down and he sees every one of us as poor. Right? Apart from him, we don't know God. That's poverty. Beyond that, we're all living on borrowed time. Every one of us. Psalm 103 says we are all like the flowers of the field that will wilt away. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. Your life is like that. My life is like that sand trickling through the hourglass. No matter what kind of exercise plan and health routine you have, diet you go on, right? We're all on borrowed time. That's poor. You live on borrowed land. You might say, well, I own my house. The truth is the bank probably owns it for most of us, right? But even if you do own the deed free and clear, you don't really own it. Jesus owns it. It belongs to him. We talked about that already. You're poor. Jesus looks down and he sees people trying to make a name for themselves and a kingdom for themselves. And he knows it's all going to perish. And eventually so will they all. Poor. And so he comes to earth and he goes to the cross so that you, by his poverty might become rich. Now, rich in what sense? It's important that we, uh, we get this right because there's some mistakes that are often made about this. I want to tell you, Jesus does not promise that if you follow him, you're immediately going to get a fat bank account. All right, That's not what this is about. Right? If you look through the scriptures, you will not find a promise that you're you know, following Jesus, you're, 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 you're going to uh, prosper uh, materially. That may happen, it may not. But coming to Jesus, right, it's not the means to an end of building your portfolio. The most godly Christ followers in the New Testament did not all of a sudden get monetarily rich because they followed him. But the gospel does promise you riches of another sort. Everybody's real, way more glorious. Because in Jesus, you can be rich in forgiveness. The angel said to Joseph, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's richness. You can be rich in a clear conscience before the living God. Your sins dealt with, cleansed, paid for. You can be rich in friendship with God. You'll know you're not just a piece of DNA thrown out into the universe, but you've been placed here by God. He has a plan for you. He has a mission for you. You can be rich in strength. Strength to cope with the challenges of the day. Life is hard, but Christ is in you. That's a a kind of wealth that you can bring into this world. Rich with the certainty of eternal life. Jesus didn't only come to earth. He didn't just die, but he also rose from the dead. And he promised he would bring you with him into his kingdom. You are meant to be rich like that. Jesus said, what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Now, if you're not a, a Christian and you're wondering, right, what is, what is it all about? What's the Bible all about? What's Christianity all about? I get to tell you this morning, that's what it's all about. This is what it's all about. The grace of God comes to us in Jesus Christ. This is what it's about. It's a little acronym for grace. I don't really don't like acronyms, but this one's actually pretty good. 
What is grace? Grace, you can think of it this way. God's riches at Christ's expense. Whoever came up with that, I don't know who it was, probably had 2 Corinthians 8, 9 in mind. God's riches at Christ's expense. So will you trust in him? Will you believe in him? Perhaps for some of us this morning, maybe your application is to do that, to trust in him, to give your life to him. Maybe you've never done that. If you'd like to talk to someone about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. I'll be hanging around here after the service. One of our elders will be standing by to the right of the stage. They can talk to you about it. If you came with somebody, maybe you can talk to them about it. And then for those who've already put their trust in Christ, as you ponder this, what we've been talking about this morning, does this move you? Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become Rich, when you think about this, what happens in your life? What happens in your heart? Are you becoming increasingly grateful? Because that's what this is meant to do in your life, right? Uh, You grow in gratitude to God for his grace. Grow in gratitude to other people that God uses in your life. Think back on your last year, right? This, This 2022. If it was anything like, if your year was anything like mine, there was probably more grumbling and complaining than there should have been. So what would it mean for you as you think about this to grow in thankfulness and gratitude over these last couple months of the year? November's coming up, right? This can prime the pump for you to think about what Thanksgiving is about, what kind of gratitude we should have. Are you growing in gratitude? And then secondly, lastly, are you becoming increasingly generous? In the Old Testament, There was a law, the tithe, right? Give away 10%. Actually, more complicated than that, but generally speaking, right, that was it. A law, the tithe, what does generosity mean? Give away 10%. But notice, when when Paul does this collection, when he starts this mission, and when he's raising money, he doesn't point to the law. Instead, he points to the generosity of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus didn't tithe his blood, did he? Rather, he poured himself out in generosity for you so that you could then pour yourself out for God and for others. If Jesus Christ gave up everything for us, then we ought to be willing to give up whatever so that we can join in his mission. It's a little early probably for this, for a Christmas illustration, but this is kind of a Christmas passage and we talked about the Christmas store earlier, so I'm going to, Leave you with Ebenezer Scrooge uh, this morning. Scrooge is uh, probably the most famous greedy miser of all time, right? In literature, at least. And the end of a Christmas Carol, you probably know, Scrooge experiences a, a transformation, a complete transformation. And here's what Charles Dickens writes He says, He went to church, he walked about the streets. And watched the people hurrying to and fro, and he patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows, and he found that everything could yield him pleasure. He never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and, he, he, and little he heeded them. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. Grace 
changed him, made him grateful, made him joyful, made him generous, and can do the same thing for us. So let's pray. Then we'll come to the Lord's table in a minute. I'll lead us in prayer and then ask you to pray with me the Lord's Prayer. And the words will be on the screen in a moment as well. But let's pray. Father, would you help us to indeed learn what, all the more what this means? That though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Would you make us a people that embrace Jesus, that are so in love with Jesus, so in awe of what he's done for us that we become increasingly grateful, increasingly joyful, increasingly generous. Lord, we pray that you'd work this in us even this morning as we pray and as we come to the Lord's table. Would you melt our hearts? Would you bring transformation to us in whatever areas that we need it? And now we pray the words that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.